Well, it's my delight to be here. Thank you, Bishop uh, Peter. And as you said, I'm a regular visitor here and a son of Wycliffe. And uh, whenever I come here, I tend to speak about the church in the global south. And this time, uh, perhaps as part of my uh, appreciation and uh, saying a prayer to former principal George Sumner, who is now going to be in Dallas, I thought I should talk about North America. Now, obviously, I should make some disclaimers to begin with. Those of us who come from the global south and coming to the north, and I'm one of them, I've been in contact with the Western world for over 30 years. And one of the things we do when we appear is to become like little saviors, talking about the uh, triumphs of the church in the global south and how it is not doing well in North America. And I can assure you that I'm not into that today. All I want to do is to reflect with you, having been coming here for some time, and actually, Bishop, when I do come here, Wycliffe is just part of what I do, but I travel to churches here in Canada, and this Friday I will be going to Algoma at the uh, Le Reader's Annual Conference to try to discuss with them what the bishop wants me to do, which is, what is the gospel? And uh, thereafter, I'll be preaching. And last Sunday, I was at a church uh, just outside Toronto. Uh, we are speaking there. So I do travel and have a glimpse of what the church here looks like, not being an expert of it, and I'm still trying to be an expert of Christianity in my own context. So I cannot be the person to tell you in North America what you uh, are and, and what you should be. But I think before we go on, I'd I like to take the liberty to say, uh, can we just bow our heads and pray? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, and we want to thank you so much for making us a learning community. And we want to pray that you will be with us as we reflect on the life of the church and its mission here in North America. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me begin by starting further away, years back, and maybe over a century back. There's no doubt that at the start of the 20th century, the global north, especially Europe, was the center of global Christianity. And this was not just in terms of numbers. It was also the center of power. And of course, those of you who follow history, you remember the great evangelical revival in Europe in the 19th century, which made the North to be the place where people are sent to the rest of the world for mission. And indeed, the decision makers and those who determined the future of the church and its mission were from the north. Let's go back to Edinburgh 1910. If you want to look at the question of power, then you know there were the majority of the delegates were white male. And Britain and the USA alone had 1,215. 509 were British and 491 Americans. North Americans, and 169 uh, were uh, people of European origin from here and there uh, in the global north. Only 27 were from South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. And 19 were from those, uh, the parts of the world that were referred to at that time as younger churches. Four were from India, four from Japan, three from China, one from Korea, and uh, one from Burma, and another one from Turkey. There was one black African, Mark Hayford. He was a Ghanaian, but his name was not even listed as part of the delegates. There was something else at Edinburgh 10, the start of the 20th century, and that was the church at that time had a lot of clear answers to the problems of the world. Now it appears that we had very little 
or even none. There was a huge sense of superiority of Christianity over other religions. There was almost like this idea of conquering religions like Islam, Hinduism, and so forth. Many missionary organizations were formed at the time, and many men and women from the north were sent to Asia, Pacific region, to Africa, and to South America. Now, I want to show you some statistics. In fact, one of the very reputable research centers in America, Pew Research Center's Forum on Religion in Public, shows that in 1910, there were about 600 million Christians in the world. The report indicates that 63.3% lived in Europe, 27.1% in the Americas, that is North, South, and Central America. Asia Pacific was third with 4.5%. Sub-Saharan Africa was fourth with 1.4%. Of those, 600 million. And the Middle East and North Africa, 0.7%. Now, in graphic terms... The pie chart there will show you what was happening in, in 1910 and then in 2010. So things have changed because at that time the global north had 82% of world Christian population compared to the total of uh, the global south, which was about 18%. 2010, things have changed. The global south has 61% of world Christians, roughly 1.3 billion, compared to only 39%, roughly 860 million in the global north, which is 39%. Now, in terms of regions, the 211 Pew Research reports suggest that only 26% of world Christians lived in Europe, compared to 66.3 uh, 63, in 1910. And 37 in the Americas, 24 in Sub-Saharan Africa, and 13 in Asia-Pacific region. Sub-Saharan Africa is a unique story because one in four world Christians now live in the global south, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, and still growing. Now, in terms of countries, we can go to, uh, if that uh, uh, chart will probably show you, ignore the first one, come to the... Uh, uh, the next one there, um, uh, this one here, which I needed. If you look at this one, the 10 top countries with the largest number of Christians are United States, Brazil, Mexico in the Americas, Russia and Germany in Europe, the Philippines and China in Asia-Pacific region, Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, let's go back a bit there. Um, Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Ethiopia are leading in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, that uh, is, in a way, showing just how the balance has shifted over the last 100-plus uh, years. I don't know whether I might show you, uh, this is just jumping ahead of me, but I, I might show you if I find, uh, I don't know whether, Steve, we can get there easily, but we, I wanted to show you uh, a website with an interactive map where you can actually find the number of Christians, a projection by Pew, uh, at any given time. And still probably uh, as an expert can show me, can help us to, to see that. Uh, just to put those figures that we're see seeing in the uh, pie charts and the graphs in uh, a different way. But if it takes longer, Steve, we might be able to uh, just skip that. Before I come now to U.S. and Canada, which represents North America uh, particularly. But if, if it takes a bit longer, we might, we might just uh, skip it. But while he's doing that, let me come to U.S. and Canada, and I give you some data. Okay, now, this is an interactive map of the way the Christian global uh, uh, landscape is now look like. Uh, let's go to world. And we have 2.1 billion 2.1 billion, that's what we have in the world. And if we do a share, we go to the Americas, and that's what I've been saying, eight, uh, 800, just over 800 million people, 
of the uh, Christian population in the Americas, but 36%, or rather 37 of the, uh, the global share. So you can see that. But then, if we go to, uh, if we, I'll leave that for a moment. Let's just have the population of the United States, which is 246 million people identify themselves as Christians in America or in the U.S. And Canada is two, uh, 24 million out of about a population of 35. In America, population 322, 246 would say they are Christians. And, of course, that we can see that from the uh, interactive map uh, just showing that, and again, you can confirm that just in the Canadian uh, map there, which is 23.4. Uh, now, that really is good news. If 246 million in the, U in the U.S. call themselves Christians and 24 million in, in, in Canada, that is very good news for mission. But that's only half of the story. The real story is perhaps this that a large percentage of those people who call themselves Christians in North America do not go to church. In fact, in the U.S., the figures show that 54% of those 246 million in 1986 were not attending church, and the number has gone down a little bit, 46% in 2010. During the same year, 1986, 43% of Canadians were not going to church. And the figures even got uh, uh, lower, which is, uh, uh, no, 43% 40, of Canadians say they attended church at least once a month. But 2010, 27% said they went to church at least once a month. So you can see that. But also, the number of the younger generation, people in their teens and early 20s, maybe 30s, uh, who regard themselves as uh, new generation, if you like, they regard themselves as non-affiliate. They don't, they don't attach to any religion, let alone Christianity, in North America. And in fact, from 2000, in 2007, 16.1 said they didn't affiliate with any religion. By 2014, which was last year, the number had gone up to 22.8%, those who don't uh, uh, regard themselves as being affiliated to any faith. But the other perhaps challenging uh, fact is, according to Pew Charitable, uh, Pew Research Center, is that those people of other faiths, Muslims, Hindus, and so forth, their number is rising in North America. So they're not just here, but their number is growing. And this perhaps uh, brings us to... Uh, Another point which I'll make soon, which is the Muslim factor in North America. But before we go to that, let's just do uh, another check for the statistics. If we go to Sub-Saharan Africa, which was 1.4 in 1910, now over 500 million people in Africa, particularly south of Sahara, would regard themselves as Christians, out of a population of about 1.1 billion in the whole continent. And you go to any country, think, for example, look at, for example, Nigeria, which we mentioned earlier as one of the top ten in the world. 80.5 million is 50% of the population, 3.7 of the total world population, that's Nigeria. But you go to my own country, Tanzania, let's see what Tanzania is doing. 26.7% would call themselves Christians out of a population of 45 uh, million. And, uh, and then what else? Uh, well, let's check, for example, let's go to um, Sub-Saharan Africa. Another country here, Democrat Democratic Republic of Congo, 95.7% and 2.9% of world population. So those are just the figures that I was showing you a little earlier. But let's leave that for a moment. Now, in North America, the mission context here must also take into account the Muslim factor. The projections are that by 2050, the number of Muslims will be equal to that of the Christians in the whole world. And by that time, almost 10% of the overall population of Europe will be Christian, will be Muslim. 
Now, the, at the moment, of course, Indonesia, Indonesia is the country with the, uh, the most uh, populous country in terms of Muslims in the whole world. That's almost like everyone else is a Muslim in Indonesia. And I don't know whether, Steve, we might get to that, whether uh, you can get me to that, and I can show them what uh, the, the figures are there in the interactive map, whether Steve is still around. But um, let me see if I can get a link and, and get there uh, myself. But even if we don't get there, if we don't get the expert to do it for us, I wanted to show the interactive map of the uh, Muslim population projections in the world. Uh, in the world. But even without that, let me just show what I can show, because it's better for Bishop to be able to do what a bishop can do. Steve, I want to, I want to go to my PowerPoints again. I don't know where you put them. But uh, just in a moment, let's go to the PowerPoint. Okay, let's go to PowerPoint, even without the interactive map. Let's go to PowerPoint here. Uh, let's go to PowerPoint. Okay, that's fine. So, what I was saying about the Muslim uh, projections is that if you look at this map here, oh, close. You look at this map here, um, you look at this map here, or this, uh, this, this chart here, which is showing you, uh, 1990, the Muslim population was very tiny, 1.1. Of the, uh, of the total world population. Now, it will be 2.2 uh, by uh, 2030, and compared to the other one, which is the annual population growth, you can see the black, the black uh, charts are representing the Muslims, and the, non, uh, or the bluish is, uh, is uh, non-Muslim. So the black, and you can see that the, pop, the Muslim population growth worldwide is at such a higher rate even than Christian uh, population growth, if you like. But if you come closer home, this is what North America will look like in just 15 years' time. Uh, look at the United States, 210, 2.5 million uh, Muslims. Now, Steve, this doesn't like me. I don't know. It doesn't like me. It doesn't like my audience. I don't know. But 20, 20, 2030, 6 million Americans will be uh, Muslim and go to Canada, which is further down the road there, in 2010, Canada had uh, 940 million, uh, 940,000 uh, Muslims. By 2030, it will be 2.6. Now, remember, I said in the whole world, by uh, 2050, the number of Muslims will probably be equal to that of the uh, Christian population. All of both of us will be 2.something billion out of a population of maybe 7 billion in the whole world. So Islam globally is growing, but here in Canada and also in the United States is growing too, and. What you want to know also is that actually Muslims, or particularly their clerics, are as missionary as we think we are. And they're working to convert white, middle-class Canadians and uh, Americans to convert to Islam. And, and Steve, I think you're going to get me here to uh, just... So I'd like to use... I'd like to use... Um, well, if we got out of that, and uh, where is our video? Just a minute. Uh, it will take us only five minutes to do. Okay, so let's do a video. One of the uh, encounters between a Muslim cleric and a white, young, uh, young white North American. Do you believe there's a God? Yeah. Do you want him to have a good relation with you and you obey him and everything? I do, but I don't really know. It's okay. I'm just, it, everything is one step at a time only. I'm not asking you to, to build a giant building or nothing. I'm just asking you a question. You believe in God and you see one. Yes. He has no partners? You can bring it down a bit. Okay. And if you knew he wanted you to do something, would you try your best? I probably wouldn't do it very well. But would you try? Okay. So this is the beginning. That's the first step. Because none of us are perfect. There's not an angel out here that you could see. If they are, they're invisible to us, right? So... If you really want to try, there's one step you take, then you take another and another. The, any journey begins by the step to get out the door of your house, doesn't it? Even if you said, I'm gonna take a train or a plane or a car, and a, but still you had to take the first step out of the house. The first step you take is always the biggest because once you do that, you're committed, you're ready. You know, I took that first step, I'm going, I'm going. Here, look at my foot and move. There are two simple steps. And I say, if you listen carefully, you'll understand why. The first step is to admit there really is God. He's one. He created me. Uh, regardless of how messed up my life is, that's another story. But there is God. There is God. And I believe that. Okay. 
And the second thing is, I want to do things the way he wants me to do it. Again, regardless of how I find myself, still I want, it, I want in my heart to have my good relation with him. If I can say that, I'm ready. Those two steps are very, very important. In Arabic, they're like this. The word Muhammad is in there. Why? Because if I find anything from Muhammad that's authentic, he really said it or taught it, I'm going to try to do that because he said he's a brother to Jesus and a brother to Abraham, meaning what? In their prophethood. And he's not going to tell me to do something illogical or crazy or, or get a tattoo in the middle of my forehead or something like that. It's just logical things that help me and help the people around me. So based on that, I'm going to try my best. Now, I used to preach Christianity. And when I came into Islam, there were a lot of things I said, oh, I don't know if I can deal with that. I don't know if you can do that. But the brothers would tell me, everything is one step at a time. One step at a time. And the first step is simple. You just repeat after me. I swear there is no God to worship except my one God, Allah. Say Allah. He has no partners. Already he's helping you right now because you said it. And he knows it. It was in your heart all along. Now the next part. And I swear that Muhammad is his messenger. Jesus is his messenger. Abraham, David, Suleiman, Adam were all messengers of God. And I want to do my best. That's it. It was easy, wasn't it? Now we'll do the Arabic. And this is going to hit you hard now because it has so much meaning. Even the prophets, when they heard it, would go down to the ground sometimes. As Shadu. Uh, you better hold on to her. <laughs> you got her? Okay. Ashadu. Allah. Ilaha. Illa. Allah. La. Sharika la. Wa. Ashadu. An Muhammad. Rasulullah. Wa Isa. That's Jesus. Rasulullah. There you are. Now, what happened to you right here, you just got forgiven for every mistake since the minute you were born until now. All you've got is good deeds. No bad deeds. Everything's clean between you and him. No matter what the people think, between you and your creator, you're good to go. And anything you ask him now is direct connect. And then there's something after this that you will learn step by step, a connection you make five times a day called Salah. It means to connect again with God. And you will begin to learn some of the things that we, we know. But they'll show you how to do it from the English, a little bit Arabic, take your time. Uh-huh. And before you know it, you're going to feel really great. Okay. How you feel right now? Good. I, I have a little bit of hope. That's what you needed, wasn't it? And yeah. he's, he is the hope. Give, give a big hug to your sister. She needs it. So, the point I was making is this. Muslims are not just living in North America as minority faiths. They are also working to convert middle-class Canadians and, North, and, 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 uh, and, and Americans, or U.S. citizens. So think about that as a mission context that probably would require some kind of a response. And let me be clear, in my country, Tanzania, we are free to evangelize Muslims. They are also free to evangelize anyone they like. And uh, the context there is always sometimes, well, among some of the people who are very radical, it takes a very ugly kind of uh, shape. But on the whole, the population of Muslims, for example, in Tanzania is just about, about 20-25%, although statistics always can be contested. But in North America, the factor is Islam is growing. Just that, if I may leave that at the moment. Now, the other thing I want to come to is about how North America does its missions, locally and internationally, and to see whether there is something we can pick up from that. Now, again, I go to history because I'm a mission historian, 
or a student of mission history, so to speak. Unlike Western Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, where missionary work overseas was and has been the responsibility of the voluntary missionary organizations, in North America, it seems to me that overseas missionary work has been the responsibility of the national churches, especially in the 19th century. And of course, this was more so in the Episcopal Church, United States, perhaps more than in Canada here. In 1824, my history study shows that the General Convention of the Protestant Episcopal Church, now the Episcopal Church, established the Domestic and Foreign Missionary Society as an organ of the church to engage in overseas missionary work. The underlying theology of mission was that the whole church was called to mission, and that mission could not be delegated to only one part of the church, uh, nor to uh, voluntary uh, organizations. Each and every baptized person must be involved in mission, whether that is domestic mission or foreign mission. Americans such as principal, former principal George Sumner, now bishop-elect of Dallas, and his wife Stephanie, came to Tanzania as uh, missionaries of the Episcopal Church when they were very young, were still very young, and that's how I met George. He was my Old Testament tutor, and I used to joke with George and say when he was in the classroom teaching Old Testament, the book of Job, he was not pronouncing it Job, which was kind of my English-British uh, accent. He was saying Jab. And when he, when he mentioned Jab, we thought he's talking about jabbing, you know, the nucleation or rather being uh, given a vaccine. And it was very interesting, learning American and uh, British <laughs> accents at the time. But never mind. He didn't jab anyone. He didn't jab anyone. But Canada, I think Canada is somewhat different in a way that to the best of my knowledge, I don't think the Canadian church ever formed a national missionary organization or had the model of Europe of voluntary missionary organizations. And please correct me if I'm wrong on that. But there is a little bit of similarity between the U.S. and here because uh, the national church here through the partnership office here in Toronto has always been able to send people. If there were any Canadians in the past who were sent overseas, like Dr. Jos uh, Dr. Uh, Thomas Westgate, who was from Huron and came to Tanzania in 1902, they were recruited by the European Missionary Societies, like CMS, for example. But the National Church sent people overseas, and that was how the Canadian Church and the American Church particularly engaged in missionary activity. But of course, things at that very time, there are always in mission some things which are informal. There is this thing which I want to explore a little bit, which is called short-term missions. They were there from the beginning of the 20th century. They're not a new thing at all. But they have become very popular in North America, almost like uh, becoming a model of mission, even during the times when the American church, the Canadian church, was sending people overseas. And I want to explore this a little bit because it seems to me that there's a lot of interest in short-term missions in North America than it is perhaps in Europe and in, uh, Asia, in uh, Australia and New Zealand. It's almost like becoming a new paradigm, if you like. Much to the dislike, much to the dislike of those who prefer long-term missionary uh, activities or rather missionary career. And in recent years, it's not uncommon to hear senior staff of a missionary organization in, in Europe particularly complaining about the local diocese somewhere or the local church somewhere interfering with their business of sending people overseas when actually they don't have experience for doing that. And, you, and also there's a question here of money, that if these churches are engaged in overseas mission themselves coming back, people coming back, then it means they're not actually supporting the missionary organizations as they should do, okay? But the, the, the short-term missions, uh, not only the churches are doing it, of course colleges do it too, universities and colleges. I think they organize uh, mission trips. And my winter course, 2014, was on the integral mission and theology in the African context. And the class I was teaching here followed me to Tarime. Uh, Brenda is there. And they spent 45 days with me in the diocese, learning about the local uh, church. But also we had, a week, we had a day set apart each week for academic reflection of the things they saw. I took them to talk to polygamists 
and try to engage why polygamy was bad and why they thought as North Americans is uh, something that is not very good. It's good, and I think you had a good conversation with the polygamists. I brought in the traditional, uh, traditional clan leaders who believe in things like female circumcision and so forth. For them to engage and talk about it, I think, Brenda, you probably had some interesting conversations with those guys. So indeed... Short-term mission trips are not just the trademark of local churches here, but even colleges and universities do that as well. Now, I guess that uh, this is a good thing for North America. It's a good thing, and uh, with a lot of potential to be able to uh, sometimes challenge the mindset of people before they go overseas, and when they come back, uh, maybe there's something that I can share with the church back here. One of the people, actually this is the communication director in the Diocese of Dallas where uh, George is going, uh, uh, Kimberly, uh, Kimberly Dunn, who was on a recent, uh, went on a recent uh, mission trip to Belize, uh, says something like this. says, going on a mission trip will not change the world, but it, it might change you. And she goes on to say, my experience wasn't earth-shattering. It was subtle. God sneaked into my heart and intellect while I concentrated on painting, shelving books, or talking to children. A sense of God's presence drifted and swirled about us while we all uh, worked, making, while we all worked, making me feel part of a greater good, less selfish and more connected to the church. There are many takeaways from the trip, but getting a clear, a clear understanding of what it means to expand the kingdom of Jesus tops the list. Now, there are those people who criticize short-term, short-term missions, and for all kinds of good reasons. One of the criticisms that I find around here is that Short-term mission trips overseas in North America, they're just an excuse for local mission. People who run away from their own local mission context and they go overseas uh, and, uh, and feel good about it. Another criticism, of course, is that it tends to focus on what North Americans can do with their money rather than what actually uh, they can do out there uh, connecting with the church because maybe landing is not necessarily the goal of those who go there. And thirdly, the criticism is that they are far too expensive. The money that is spent on those local projects is only a tiny fraction of the cost of the trip, you know, the tickets and the medical insurance and so forth. So people would probably argue uh, somehow uh, against, against the, uh, the, uh, the short mission trips. But I, I think they're a good thing. I think they're a good thing. My own observation and reflection on this, which I'll probably talk to the church leaders and mission thinkers here in North America, is this. Number one, there should not be a hit-and-run kind of practice where people go, they come back, and they disappear completely. There should be a result of a long-term partnership in mission relationships. Like Wycliffe came to my diocese because I've been coming here for years and years. And, and my diocese was probably the right place where these people could come. And when I come back here, I can still meet with people like Brenda. I meet with people like Beth. So it's not like a hit-and-run kind of thing, which some of them appear to be. The other thing that I think is uh, the church leaders here, clergy and bishops, when people come back from a mission trip, making a presentation on a Sunday, showing exotic pictures of, uh, pictures of poverty around the world, and that's the end of story, I think there should be more than that. Those who have been on a mission trip deserve better, and those who are left home praying for them also deserve better. There should be a way in which this experience of North America doing mission trips overseas is actually integrated into the life of the church because really this can be an eye-opener to quite a number of people here about God's church in the world. So that's the kind of thing I probably want to say on mission trips, you know. Uh, in my view, I think they're a good thing. But there's another thing in North America which is uh, running uh, below the, the surface, if you like, but of course visible. And this is about immigration. There's been a lot of talk recently here about immigration, whether you're a government of Canada here, if you're a Canadian, or U.S. as well. Europe should take in more uh, refugees, from, uh, refugees and immigrants from Syria and from Iraq and from Afghanistan. I wonder whether Christians, mission thinkers, theologians, and church leaders here are actually understanding what is going on in North America properly. Because I find... Places, including Wycliffe here, providing a space for worship for immigrant communities who come to Canada or North America, so to speak. And I just ask myself, 
why is it that these people are not able to be integrated in some way into the life of the church? Is that because of language barrier? Is that because of cultural barrier? Or more than that, perhaps? But these churches sometimes, these communities of people who have come as Christians from their own countries, you sometimes realize there are very vibrant churches, vibrant communities, thriving. And if I was a church leader here, I would be saying, hey, I mean, if these people are in Toronto or in any city, I want to, I want to engage with these people. If I cannot really get into them because they are so kind of a, a closed uh, community and it's not easy to be able to engage properly, I would want to say, hey, can I train people? Can I send people to Wycliffe, to Trinity, to other colleges, and then send them back to work with those communities as part of a mission of a local diocese or a local church rather than leave them as an option extra over there? Now, I don't know what church leaders here probably think about that. But uh, it's something that real North America should be able to uh, think about seriously. The other thing, uh, moving a bit quicker here because uh, we, we started a bit late, is literacy, the culture of reading books and mission in North America. I can tell you, my friends, brothers and sisters, I'm fascinated by the culture of all white people in the world, North America, Europe of reading. From the time you are a tiny baby, or not a baby, a child, reading books, reading stories every single night. I used to read some of them when I was at school. It was some of interesting stories, but only at school, because we could really find books in the schools. But here, I think this culture is something that could be used for mission purposes. This culture of reading books. But what I always ask myself is... uh, are these people also reading the Bible as much as they read novels and fictions? Imagine if every night, families, individuals were reading a Bible passage every single night in their homes. Because we all know that Sunday services, one sermon a week is not enough. Even with a high literate societies like yours in North America, it's simply not, not enough if you're North Americans. It's not enough. One has to know more. So it may well be for me as an outsider that this highly literate society could also be biblically illiterate. It's just a possibility. I'm just thinking. I'm just reflecting. Now, I think this is something that people need to do. And of course, imagine also, even with the online, the internet, Online material, online books. Bookstores are still thriving in North America. And in Europe too. People still go and buy the books. Imagine if they could be buying Christian books and reading them. The assumption is that, of course this is another kind of arrogant approach to things, the Africans would come here, much of the global south, and say, the church is growing a lot in our part of the world. And the response of North Americans and people in Europe would be, well, it's growing but it's a horizontal growth. It's not deep theologically. And then I'll be saying, where on earth, anyway, is the church, ordinary person, deep theologically or has a depth of theology? Where is it? The people who come to theological college to study theology have a deep knowledge of theology. But the people who are in the pews, they go there, they have a sermon one Sunday, they go back and read a story about something, and they go to bed. That's the end of it. So if you ask a lot of people around what they understand about Jesus, and this is why Bishop Stephen Andrews is asking me to go and discuss with his lay uh, leaders about what is the gospel. And I have no paper in my hands going to Algoma. I'm going to throw this away when I finish my lecture here. I'm going with my bare hands, but with the Bible, going to answer the question, what is the gospel, perhaps uh, with all the issues of hermeneutics and everything. So, so my, 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 my take here is, there is a way in which the church can take advantage of this culture of reading, mission thinkers, theologians, and church leaders to reflect more on this and see how we can connect with the people in that way. Given also that the technology here is very high, very high. And in fact, I was thinking the other day about the uh, picture on the front page of the National Post. There was a National Post this week about how politicians are targeting individuals with their policies. I got Steve to photograph that for me, but we didn't actually... It didn't come out very well, Steve, so I, did, I probably couldn't use it here. But I was thinking about 
this culture with a huge, huge amount of advantage of theology or of technology, why can't it use that for mission to the maximum? Because in the global south, the part of the place I come from, even internet connection itself is a big issue. Sometimes I, I start sending an email and I forget to, to write first in, in the word docu- as a word document and then copy it. When I think I'm writing within the email itself, and then all of a sudden the connection is gone. And I have to start afresh again. I get frustrated. That's not happening here. In fact, when I come here, sometimes I, I become a little Canadian. I wait for emails to come back from Tanzania for five days, and I start getting frustrated. These guys are not responding. <laughs> and then they, they come back five days later. They say, Bishop, there was no power here for five days. <laughs> there was no internet connection for five days. And I repent. I say, oh, God, forgive me. Because I think like a little Canadian here, but I... You know, I'm going back to Tanzania soon. But for you here, guys, power is no issue. Internet is no issue for part of it, for a major part of it. So make use of that as part of, uh, um, as part of your um, uh, mission thinking and the practice of mission here in North America. But I'm coming closer to things that will be closer home now. Now, I've got two left. And I want to leave some time for us to have a conversation a little bit. Don't worry, Bishop, I'm going to preach at the chapel too. And perhaps without a piece of paper either. <laughs> this is mission. This is mission. <laughs> right. It will happen. In my continent, life is like an elephant. Everything happens. And of course, some, sometimes, you know, yeah, the, the, the creator makes things happen. I can understand here when people can get very frustrated uh, with things and, uh, uh, and you just uh, uh, forgive oneself when you get into those kind of things that uh, make people feel like you're not mindful of time a lot. And then I ask, but what have you been spending your time on? But now listen to this next bit. This is going to be interesting. I'm getting closer home now. Local, the local church in North America and mission. Clergy and lay ministers whose training did not expose them sufficiently and strategically to a continuous study of mission and religion will end up having difficulty in putting mission on their church agenda. They may desire to see the church growing spiritually and in numbers, but they will have little passion for it. If they do, it will be by sheer luck and as a result of God's generous uh, grace. Clergy are at a great risk of focusing on what North Americans require of them, success in ministry. Clergy in many parts of the world pay too much attention to the matters of maintenance at the expense of mission. Yet the church that is not mission-minded risks uh, suffering a natural death. Now, with the longer lifespan of many people in North America, congregations are likely to become older and having more senior citizens. If more people are not coming in, then what will happen to the church? If I had anything to say to clergy in North America, it would be something like this about mission. My friends, relax. Spend more time praying and reading the Bible and seek God's wisdom in your work. Do not wear yourself out for nothing by just running around the parish doing pastoral work, which is necessary. But it's a maintenance ministry. It's not a mission ministry. Maybe there's some mission in it. Think mission and get the congregation involved in local and international mission. If local mission is difficult to start with, start with international mission. Seek companionships with other churches and church leaders, preferably the exotic global south. Consider forming parish-to-parish and congregation-to-congregation relationships. Send your people out to short-term missions. Make mission the focus of your worship services. Remember, God sends out people to mission in a worship context. That is Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, and Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Expose your congregations to the Holy Spirit, not to church tradition alone. Build the confidence of your congregation to acknowledge that faith is not a private commodity. Let the people come face to face with the transforming love of God. God's love is free. There are people in your community who need it, so share it. Human beings are fragile everywhere. They need to be loved and supported. Every member of your congregation can share God's love. Encourage them to do so and to make the right connections. And if you cannot do it the African way, fair enough. 
My prayer is that North America would learn how to make connections, building bridges within the communities where we live, rather than necessarily having to have the Bible and going around. By the way, my friends, my, uh, my dear Bishop Peter, I see things here in North America that some of you, being local people, you can't see. The other day I was walking out of Broadview uh, uh, Subway, and there were people there with uh, bill posters. And the two guys, a lady and a man, and they had something reading, uh, something reading like this. Do you really know what the Bible says? And I, I took a bit of interest. I wanted to take my uh, smartphone and take a picture. I looked at it closer and realized they were members of the Jehovah's, uh, the Je- Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, okay, this is happening here. The other day on the subway, I was looking up the, uh, the advert, and I found the uh, Canadian Trinitarian, uh, Trinitarian Bible Society. Yeah, they had an advert there. And I said, these people are advertising on the, on the subway. I mean, imagine if all the churches have been able to raise money and get all the people advertising on the subway out and every poster is about Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. How would that be? I mean, people in the subway reading about Jesus everywhere. I don't know whether that can happen here. Never mind. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Now, uh, so... Uh, let me tell you a story. Bishop, we're getting there. I'll say this. Reclaim the place of the Bible in the life of the church. Faithful delivery is important. And you have technology, you can do that. Uh, you can use it. But also there's another angle to it. As a, a southerner, I can probably spot this easily. Science, natural science, medical science, anything, has almost wiped out this notion of the existence of the spiritual world. I mean, you as Christians in theology, do you think there's something called a spiritual world? Do you think it does exist? You see, a priest back, in, back home who had gone to a theological college, did their theology, came back, the only thing they didn't study at the theological college was about healing, healing ministry. So when members of the congregation bring in someone whom they, uh, they imagined had been demon-possessed, they go to this clergyman and say, we brought this person, but we think he's demon-possessed. Can you pray for him? And the priest goes back and says, wait a bit by the doorside. I want to go to my library, see whether I can find a book on healing ministry. And when I have read the book, I'll come back and pray for this person. The fact that it was not in the syllabus at theological college means the healing ministry or the ministry of exorcism doesn't exist. Now I know scientific advance is necessary, but in North America and much of Europe, it is almost like wiped the possibility of the existence of the spiritual world. So when we call ourselves Christians, which kind of world do we belong to if it's not a spiritual world of some kind? So I'll be saying again to uh, the priest here about mission, build on the strength of the economy of North America, learn from the secular businesses. They advertise regularly on TV, on newspapers, they display bill posters where applicable, they do so, some of them daily, some of them over time. They keep expanding their customer base. They seek to know what customers want. They seek new potential customers. They send agents door to door. They knock, they talk. They rebrand their businesses. The church could learn from the secular institutions in that way and use that method in a Christian context. And for my fellow bishops, what did I be saying? Well, if a bishop here, a uh, diocesan bishop, I'll say, my fellow bishops, have a clear and simple vision, mission plan for your diocese. Use a participatory ground-up process to formulate vision and mission plan. Get the clergy and the parishes on board to own it and implement it and direct your resources to mission work. Now, finally, if we might have a bit of time to speak, uh, to engage, and I hope we will do. This is about theological institutions like Wycliffe and Mission. Now, Bishop, I'm, I'm taking risk here because I'm, I'm speaking to the converted. I'm a member of Wycliffe College. Western academic study focuses on what I might think or I may call open-ended philosophical inquiry that is very enriching. Courses taught are good, biblical studies, theological studies, church history, you name it. And they help the students to reach the highest possible level as thinkers, students come to college hoping that they will be helped in the area of personal spiritual growth too. 
And I hope that colleges can also help students to become leaders of mission, not just ministers in the church. Now, one of the challenges is how to balance academic study and the practice of mission. Can academic study be a period to wrestle with mission issues in one's own country, in one's own region? And I declare my interest here. My uh, area of interest, my main area of interest is mission. It seems to me that the challenge for theological colleges is to uh, get mission out of being an optional extra into the mainstream of their studies. Because it seems to me that only the diehard enthusiasts would be interested to study evangelism, religion, development, and mission. So academic institutions must choose a brand that they want to be. We at Wycliffe must choose a brand that we want to be. And then say to the students, the prospective students, why are you going to that particular college? I was in Uganda in June, leading a Bible study for the faculty, strategic planning meeting, and then I gave, a le- I gave uh, about three lectures, uh, three, four, five lectures to students on gospel and culture. And then one of the students there was asking me, why is it that our professors here, they will forgive us if we are late to report to chapel, but they will punish us if we are late with our uh, papers, if we have gone beyond the deadlines. Why is it? And the principal was standing there. So I said, talk to your principal about that, not me. But I think cause papers are equally important for mission, just as worship is. That's what uh, I did add to that. Now, for us here, my brothers and sisters, a bit uh, perplexed, and I think I probably lived this as a challenge for our college, that when I look at the courses, I'm looking at my own course, uh, World Challenges for Christianity Today, or when I do Gospel and Culture, or when I do African mission history, I'm looking up the headings there under the course uh, listings, and I'm, I'm struggling to find where my course is. Challenges of world, mission, world Christianity is listed under theological. Church planting and fresh express, expressions listed under pastoral theology. I say, why is it not something over there saying mission and religion or mission and development? Do we have to beg TST a lot or the people in high authorities before we can do that? Or can we do it ourselves? My brothers and sisters, I said at the beginning I wasn't coming here as a savior. I'm a son of Wycliffe College. My reflections are just to give us or make us a bit uh, uh, excited and thinking. And Bishop, I want to thank you so much for having me. And I, I know your time here is very comforting, very reassuring. And this is a great place. Otherwise, I can tell you, Bishop, we from the global south, some of us, particularly from my tradition, I'm, I'm a child of Western academic tradition too, except that I, I moved out of it a little bit during my master's and doctoral studies at Edinburgh University. But we are very nervous about where we go these days because North America is not very safe for us. So if you see me coming to Wycliffe, you could know that this is a good college. <laughs> and I'm proud to be associated with, with Wycliffe. God bless you.